0: The world is at a pivotal moment.
1: Geopolitical clashes have spawned an intense race for technology leadership.
0: Industries are being reshaped.
1: Globalization is being reimagined. I'm Andrew Schwartz.
0: And I'm Kirti Gupta. We're here to break down how geopolitics and technology are impacting our economy,
1: our security, and our our daily daily lives.
0: lives. This This is is Geotech Geotech Wars. Wars. everyone. Today, Andrew and I are joined by Matt Turpin. I'm really glad to have you here, Matt. Matt is a visiting fellow at Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and he specializes in U.S. policy towards China, economic tradecraft, and technology innovation. And he's also a senior advisor at Palantir Technologies. Before this, Matt served as the U.S. National Security Council's Director for China and Senior Advisor on China to the Secretary of Commerce. Before that, he served as an advisor on People's Republic of China to the Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Pentagon. I just can't think of a better person to unpack some of the realities of the geotech wars we are facing globally today. And Matt, we have learned so much in our conversations together over the past few years we've been working together. It's really my pleasure to To welcome you,
2: so excited to be here with you and Andrew. So thank you,
1: Kirti. That was a great introduction. No one could have said that better. Matt, you're the perfect guest. I want to just open up by asking you: Is the United States and China actually in a cold war right now?
2: Well, I think it is. We've been in this condition now for a couple of years, and I think the way in which we might sort of look at this is that I think certainly Beijing thinks that we're in a cold war. You know, they view themselves in sort of an existential struggle against an international system that is designed to disadvantage regimes like their own. And they view this from the perspective that that a liberal rules-based international system, from their perspective, was set up to undermine authoritarian regimes and to advantage democracies and open societies. And of course, they're not wrong in that. That is sort of what we set up. And I think when we look at for both Beijing and for Moscow, their obsession with, with color revolutions, their look at sort of how Western ideas are infiltrating their systems and undermining their rule, they have largely concluded that they are in this existential struggle with a part of the world you know, that they see as, as threatening to them. And so I think it's important for us to sort of take it from that perspective, that, that even if we desire there not to be a Cold War, there is one. And I think that term Cold War, and I look at so Neil Ferguson and Peter Robinson did, did a great podcast sort of last week, sort of looking at, at, at Neil's ideas around Cold War II. And I think that we have to look at the language that, that George Orwell first used in October of 1945, in which the term Cold War was sort of coined. And it's this idea that sort of nuclear weapons makes powers that have nuclear weapons unconquerable that it is a peace that is no peace, that there is this sort of competition and rivalry across all domains. And I think that, to me, characterizes the sort of rivalry that we we are in right now with the PRC. And viewing it through that lens, I think, is important for us because it's hard for us to sort of organize the activities that we should be doing if we don't recognize the real geopolitical conditions we find ourselves in. Kirti, over to you.
0: Yeah. Matt, another thing I would like to draw is the distinction between the previous Cold War with the Soviet Union, USSR, and where we are today. Because while the Cold War was primarily a political and perhaps at some level a military war, this today is truly an economic and technological war. And I wonder if we are fully equipped to address that and to deal with the mega challenge. It's very different. What do you think?
2: Yeah. I I mean, I would I would contend that our first experience with the Cold War. Right. So the historical experience of sort of 1947 to 1991, you also had an economic and technological aspect to it as well. It was not entirely clear that you would have sort of divergent economic systems at the start of that Cold War. Right. That that was something that would became the sort of the product of waging that Cold War is essentially two separate economic systems. It certainly wasn't what was apparent at the start of it. And then from a technological perspective, what we saw was a sort of divergent paths of technology. And the United States and its allies really won that technology race. And certainly by the 1970s and 1980s, it was very apparent, right? Sort of after the space race and the revolution of microelectronics, it was very clear that the United States had an overwhelming lead in those areas. And so as we find ourselves back at, at the starting of this one, it is likely going to play out in those same different areas, right? There's going to be an ideological aspect to this. There's going to be the competition for diplomatic influence. There's going to be a military aspect to this. There's going to be a technology and an economic aspect. And so I think being mindful that that, that the rivalry will unfold across all of those domains is sort of what a Cold War is. Now, some will be more important than others, and certainly conditions are different today than where we were in 1947. But the reality is that the overall structure of it is very similar in that you have sort of two alternative constructs of how the international system would be set up. And I think we, we can look back to you know really a, a proposal that Xi Jinping made to President Obama, you know, really within the first six months of Xi Jinping coming into office, this idea of new type, great power relations, right? That the PRC would would maintain its own sphere of influence. It would set the rules inside that sphere of influence U.S. might have its own sphere of influence in the Western Hemisphere, perhaps including Europe, and then the two great powers would show mutual respect for one another, but there wouldn't be sort of a global set of norms and rules. Well, that's a very different sort of intellectual or a very different international system. It's sort of a return to sort of a Westphalian spheres of influence as opposed to sort of the post-1945 or even a post-Wilsonian idea that you've got global norms and rules and that all countries are sort of operating within that. That's that's, I think, what we have is a a competition that's happening.
0: You know, I would just like to emphasize that in the beginning of the previous Cold War and even at at its height, the amount of trade and economic interdependence between the U.S. and USSR was nothing like nothing like the enormous amount of economic interdependence we have between the U.S. and China today. Uh, So as we have this conversation, we have to think about the economic consequences for both countries and the world as we navigate this. Yeah,
2: and I completely agree with that. So my concern is that often our view is often the discussions that we have on on the sort of the US side is that because the economic consequences are so high, we conclude that therefore this Cold War couldn't happen. And what my position would be that the Cold War is happening. We may not desire to observe it. It is happening. It will have enormous economic implications. It is much better for us to sort of think through what those implications are and to take actions proactively rather than to pretend like it's not happening and hide our head in the sand. That would be the worst approach to take, is to pretend it's not happening.
1: Well, it's a lot easier to talk it into existence than to talk it out of
2: existence, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's it's you know, we should be thinking about, you know, not only how to Cold War start, but what's their progress and how do they unfold over time and then how do they end so unfortunately we really only have sort of one historical experience and so we tend to sort of fall back on that one historical experience but of course that isn't the only way in which it could unfold and the one experience we have is not the only way it could end and that's that's i think very it's then difficult for us to imagine what are those other options but we should begin to explore those so matt i take it you believe that the
1: rivalry is likely to become more pronounced, and more intense. Can you
2: tell us what you think about that? So I think that over the course of, of this Cold War, we will go through ebbs and flows of hostility and, and rivalry, right? There will be periods of intense rivalry, and there will be periods of, of, of sort of detente in which both sides sort of step back and say for their own reasons internally that, that now is not the time to accelerate the rivalry, And I think it's extremely difficult that when you're in it to tell where you are in this sort of story, right? One could make an argument that both sides are seeking to find some sort of floor, whether we see this from from the outreach from the Chinese foreign minister to the U.S. ambassador this week, or sort of earlier, you know, things that had happened after Bali at the end of last year. But then we see things like, you know, the surveillance balloons that flow over the Fly over the United States, and that, that that ups the rivalry, right? And to a certain degree, if we look at this through the sort of the news cycle of a sort of a day-to-day news, breaking news, it's very difficult to tell where we are. And to a certain degree, it will require a bit of, of sort of stepping back to be able to sort of measure where the you know, where the upticks in hostility are and where both sides are seeking to sort of, for their own reasons, to, to be able to compete over the long term, are seeking to put a floor or put guardrails around where the competition is. But I suspect that we will go through that cycle. That is the sort of cycle that is likely to come from this kind of a, of a rivalry.
1: You know, it's really interesting that you brought up the news cycle on this because the day-to-day news cycle in certain major publications and on television, certainly is trying to handicap this Cold War in the way we might a political
2: race. What, what is the media's role in this, do you think? Well, I mean, I think that from the perspective of how journalists are sort of looking at the day-to-day, I think, you know, one you've seen over the last sort of five years, nearly every media outlet Concluding that this is a major sort of meta narrative of what's going on, right? This, you know, and this is, there was an earlier period of time where the meta narrative was really around the inexorable rise of China, right? I mean, so you can, you can sort of think back. I think many of your listeners could, could envision like the, the front covers of The Economist or, or various other things. And you could see these sort of, these narratives, these sort of meta narratives of, of China's inevitable rise to dominance. And now you have essentially, you know, that sort of the, the overall sort of picture is that is the United States, the PRC are locked in some sort of contest in a rivalry that's very deep and that and that we don't know where this is going. These are the sort of the stories that folks are then going out and finding things to fill in the margins on. Right. And so. You've got the Wall Street Journal putting out a piece on on a U.S. company that's involved in the defense sector that's been helping the the Chinese government on a number of areas. Right? You just had the expulsion of of a Chinese diplomat from Canada. You know, following months of reporting on Chinese political interference inside Canadian elections, and then you had the retaliation in which the the, in which Canadian diplomat was expelled from Shanghai. Right? So this is the churn that you're going to see, and and it isn't just happening in the United States. You know, these things are happening across multiple countries simultaneously you had german chancellor schultz you know essentially saying that the relationship the prc is increasing one of, increasingly one of rivalry right so this goes back to you know nearly 4 years of the europeans talking about you know there are three aspects of the relationship one is a partner, one is a competitor, and one is a rival, right? These things are unfolding across multiple countries simultaneously. And the media is, of course, reporting on that. And that becomes a, a whole sort of section of how, of how it's reported on. Kirti, I know you want to
1: jump in here. Please do.
0: So, again, I'm going back to the theme of very high economic interdependence. The tension here is that China is both our biggest competitor and our biggest customer. And as we go down this path of increasing tension that you are laying down, Matt, we are in a cold war. We are not able to calibrate where we are, and both countries are trying to find a floor. What truly concerns me is what that floor looks like. What is the impact on industries? What is the impact on consumers? What is the impact on global GDP? War is good for nobody. How do we contain this? How do we find a common floor that makes sense.
2: Well, I mean, of course, um, you know, there, are, there are winners and losers in in what's happening. And so you know, I think perhaps it's a bit unfortunate the way in which we've sort of framed this, in which the prior sort of economic relationship was nothing but net positive on both sides, and therefore any change in that is gonna only mean net negative for both sides as it changes. And of course, It wasn't all net positive before. And of course, as it changes, it won't only be net negatives. There will be new winners and losers that come out of this, just as there were winners and losers as we adapted to sort of what the economic system set up over the last three decades. Right. So so those changes are likely going to unfold. I think to me, the most the most sort of important aspect to sort of draw from this is that given that we have sort of a new set of geopolitical conditions, the business models and supply chains and value chains that we've established over the last 30 years are unlikely to be fit for purpose. The business models, supply chains, value chains, right, how we did commerce was all set up with a set of fundamental geopolitical assumptions that we had come to the end of a Cold War That we had a normative global economic system and essentially the rules would be followed everywhere. That set of assumptions sets you down the path. If you're any sort of C suite or institutional investor, you're moving down a path in which you are favoring business models that are set up and designed for those conditions. The challenge is that those are no longer the geopolitical conditions we are in, right? And so therefore, there's going to be different business models that make sense. Now, it's going to be a period of significant disruption as those change. But in order to have successful business models, you will adapt to what those new conditions are. And that's what I think we're seeing unfold over time. And of course, for an incumbent, right, so like a business incumbent that's sitting inside a, a business sector in which they have optimized their business model for the old set of geopolitical conditions, as that changes... Those incumbents will come under enormous pressure. They will likely get disrupted by a new incumbent, a, you know, a, a new business model that is not encumbered by all of those old, at all of that older baggage. You know, and you'll see folks that will begin to adapt. So, so to me, this is sort of this is what we're likely to see. I'm not making a value judgment of of whether the old system was better than the new system. It's simply what is going to happen, and and that's I think become. That's just very scary and and costly for those who are having to consider making those changes. But we will make those changes. Like that's, that's something I'm actually fairly certain about. We can be fairly certain that our market economies will account for those changes and then change those business models into something that more matches geopolitical conditions we're in.
1: Yeah. You know, Matt, you have one of my favorite quotes of the last year or so on this. Last November, you told the New York Times, Apple is discovering that geopolitics drive business models, not the other way around. That really says
2: it all. Right. And for for a longest time, we sort of thought that governments were irrelevant. Right. I mean, there was this period of time where we had thought that sort of because you know and to sort of simplify I know this is not what the author of this sort of the argument he made, but but sort of at the end of history that it didn't matter anymore right that you could you could do business anywhere, capital and labor and goods could flow anywhere we had a normative global system, and therefore and that was the most efficient way to do it that isn't the system we're in now, and so therefore. As those conditions change, it will force changes on businesses, even though they don't like it. And businesses that understand that will do better. And businesses that sort of fight against the tide will not do particularly well. And I suspect what we will see is agnostic investors who will see those dynamics and those companies that are making those changes, they're going to get greater investment. And those who stand in the way of it are unlikely to get more investment.
0: Okay. Matt, I know you've said before, and I love this other quote of yours, vacation from history is over. And that's what you're saying about. I stole that from
2: someone. so I I make no claim of authorship on that one. Everything's already been
1: done. You know, it's not everybody can be Bob Dylan. That's right. So that's why people do a lot of cover tunes.
0: (laughs) So you've said before, Matt, that vacation from history is over and companies need to readjust, businesses need to readjust. But let me just put the industry head on in this conversation for a minute and get us down to brass tracks, reality, practical reality on the ground. And I want to challenge a little bit your notion that, you know, the companies that adjust according to the geopolitical reality are going to get more investments. I want to challenge that a little bit. So let me give you an example of the semiconductor chips industry, something I'm, you know, intimately familiar with. As you know, As most of us know, the chips have been a big focal point of the current geopolitical discussion. And there has been a lot of discussion about bringing some of the chip manufacturing back in the United States and allied nations from where it's concentrated today in Taiwan and other parts of Asia Pacific and reduce interdependence with China. Now, that's a noble goal, but consider the following, that today... A third of the amount of semiconductor revenue that is originated from the U.S. companies ends in China, is consumed in China. But over two-third, over 70% actually, of the global semiconductor revenue originating from U.S. firms passes through China. Let me explain. Chips from the U.S. companies are sold to different component makers and manufacturers of, for example, cell phones in China, they put those chips inside consumer electronic products and then ship it out to the rest of the world. So severing trade ties with China doesn't just mean losing a portion of the revenue that ends in China. It means severing global revenues of these goods. How do we deal with that?
2: Yeah. And I've certainly been involved with, you know, our our multi year multi administration effort on semiconductors, and I think one of the one of the main lessons I learned from this is that while the semiconductor industry you know, is absolutely critical, semiconductors are, are obviously simply components of broader products right so you know, i 'm I'm betting that that of the three of us and, and most of your listeners, none of us have ever bought sort of individual semiconductors. we buy them as a part of products, right we buy them as some of the most important components of products that we buy. And of yeah, course Yeah, and I just want to yeah.
0: interject here Matt, like I've been in this industry for a long time and you know when I used to say chips, people used to say what kind of chips, are potato chips. And now everybody knows they, what, they chips know are, what chips are, what semiconductor yeah. chips are.
2: So so obviously what Beijing has done over the last two decades is to make massive concentrations on becoming the global hub of electronics manufacturing, right? So so they're the consumer of chips right i mean in a, like a broad in a broad sense as in you know they're the ones that actually buy the chips to put into other things and so you know i think you know, i i remember hearing this from numerous semiconductor industry representatives that their number one problem was that china was their number one customer and their number one competitor right so essentially you know seeking to sort of design them out right and this goes back to made in china 2025 Beijing's efforts to move up the value chain, you know, understanding that while they had sort of the base of manufacturing of man- of electronics, they wanted to move up the value chain of all of the inputs, right? So the, while the United States and Japan and Taiwan and South Korea, you know, had the more valuable inputs, as in they were concentrating on manufacturing those most important and most valuable components, i.e. semiconductors, that that's where Beijing wanted to move so that they weren't as dependent upon those outside inputs and that they had those internal it had those internally. And so obviously that's the challenge that we're in. Now, I mean some of the things that we might see unfold over the next few years is that as restrictions are put into place and continue to be enforced on advanced semiconductors you know, being sold into the PRC, those industries that need to take advanced semiconductors and put them into, into finished electronics then have a choice, right? they could try and continue to assemble those things inside the PRC where they actually are not going to be able to get those advanced components or they could move the, the the assembly to some other place right they could move it to a third country where presumably they could get those advanced semiconductors and so i think that's what we'll we'll see that we'll see the shifting of decision making about where you manufacture things and so therefore that control of the commanding heights of semiconductors is used to push manufacturing of electronics to other places. These are all costly transitions. But again, these are costs that the like, likely the market is going to adjudicate over time as, as we see different patterns. Yeah, so, so, I mean, where we were, I think, in 2017, you know, it was something on the order of 90% of the world's smartphones were assembled inside the PRC. That's not the condition it is now. It's not, it's not down to 50% but it's certainly not moving in the direction of greater and greater concentration. It's now looking at more diverse, you know, diffuse concentration of where manufacturing takes place. And I think those trends will just continue to unfold over time. It still will make an awful lot of sense to some a lot of things inside the PRC, but over time, those things will shift. And, and we'll see where, where companies come down, right? I mean, different companies are going to make different bets. I try and look at it from sort of blurring my eyes and trying to look at like, where, where is the fuzzy trend going? And it would look to me that we've seen sort of the peak of where hyper concentration of manufacturing in one country is, and we're going to likely move to less concentration to other places.
1: You know, another thing that people might have not realized was a big thing in the 80s and 90s, when you said AI, you might have thought that you were talking about Alan Iverson or the surfer Andy Irons. Now we all know what we're talking about with AI. And Matt, I want to ask you, how does AI play into this Cold War? Does it, you know,
2: accelerate it with the United States and China? I mean, I think our thesis, both in the U.S. and in the PRC, as well as in third countries, is that artificial intelligence will be extremely important. We don't exactly know how it's going to to do that, but it's going to play a very important role. And so I think what we're seeing is that countries are positioning themselves in order to try and take advantage of what they perceive to be a, a significant competitive advantage, both from a from an economic perspective, but also from a national security perspective, that it that artificial intelligence is by its very nature a dual use item, like that it has both national security and economic implications to it, and that and that countries have decided that that they should therefore position themselves to be to be prepared for that, you know, as well as that 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 the nature of artificial intelligence will unfold and develop based upon the operating system that it exists in, right? So, so if, you're, if you're talking about a sort of an operating system of a small L liberal, open, transparent society, and a governance system in which you've got democratic inputs and being able to do that, you're sort of a transparent and open system, artificial intelligence might look a certain way if executed through that lens. And through an authoritarian sort of one-party sort of Leninist model— that artificial intelligence will look very different, and I think we're already starting to see that. Right, we're, we're already starting to see how those things manifest with generative AI and the kinds of things we're starting to see out from from news reporting on on the developments of these things. And so, we'll take development paths that are separate, but each side has a thesis, right? And I and I remember when when I was in the Department of Defense, you know, working with Bob Work. On sort of the third offset strategy and defense innovation initiative. Yeah, you know, we had a thesis then that, that artificial intelligence would be sort of the critical military technology into the future. And I think it's very clear that that the PRC at the same time made the same conclusions and therefore started, you know, this is this is like 2015, 2016, and started making its own investments along that path. And so we're seeing this play out over time. But it's also not entirely clear what it will all mean because we're still in the middle, or probably in the very beginning stages of how this plays out. So we are projecting into the future where we think it's going to be important. We know it'll likely be important, but it's not yet apparent how it will shift that that competition. But each side wants to one reduce its risks, you know, to the other to breakthroughs on the other side, as well as position itself to be able to take advantage of, of opportunities better than the other side. Yeah, you know, we just
1: celebrated Henry Kissinger's 100th birthday party here at CSIS. And one of the things he was saying is that when it comes to artificial intelligence, we don't yet really know what to worry about. Kirti.
0: Yeah, you know, this is also my concern. Semiconductor chips have been a focus for so long because they are a foundational technology that go into everything. And Matt, I think you have also described it as a technology that is You know, it's really hard to make complicated, very, very complex chips. So it can create a real honest throttle point for economic and otherwise competitor like China, right, for us. But I think AI significantly levels the playing field in terms of a military, political, economic conflict. It's much easier to break in. It's, you know, based on open source models. So it's much faster to implement code on top of code anywhere. And anybody can sort of break that barrier to entry and Utilize those tools in pretty significant, highly scalable ways for different kinds of statecraft. So I really worry about you know us not having the right regulatory global framework for using AI algorithms.
2: I think there is a there there's sort of a thesis that that's, that that's true. I don't think we know yet. <laughs> One that, that that the barriers to entry are are easily overcome. Yeah, I, I mean, hope you're right,
0: we've, Matt. <laughs> we've, we've, we've
2: heard, you know, from Google and, and OpenAI that there is no moat, you know, so so we, we certainly heard that. And, and I'm certainly not an expert in these areas, so I, I tend to sort of defer to those judgments. But again, we also don't know how this will unfold over time. From a U.S. perspective, we've chosen to address the competition around artificial intelligence, Really through through the control of advanced chips. So if we we look at sort of artificial you know, like what are the what are the constituent parts of what makes up artificial intelligence? In which you could think about how the competition would unfold. Yeah. You know, so there's sort of I think really four main areas. Right. There's sort of the access to the sort of the talent that knows how to implement it. There is the algorithms, sort of the, the actual, the functions of, of, of how it operates. There's the data that is the sort of the training sets, right? Large enough data trading sets with enough, you know, specificity and, and clean enough, but also broad enough and large enough to be able to train these models on with the talent that you've got. So those three areas are kind of probably hard to imagine how to how to control, and there's no clear answer that the United States has a significant lead in those areas over the PRC, like that you could lay out that they would have just as much skill in those areas. But the fourth area, which is the actual chip hardware that you would use to actually run all of that, well, the U.S., and its allies actually do have a significant moat, right, around a competitive advantage and around advanced chips. And of course, that is what, what we've seen from the October 7th, 2022, export restrictions on advanced chips. And and the administration has been very successful in, in gaining support from Japan and from the Netherlands to be able to sort of concentrate that competitive advantage. And so it's, it's to me, a little bit unclear whether or not it's, you know, I think I've seen reporting that the PRC is trying to design around those choke points, but it's not clear to me that, that that will be successful.
0: It's not that simple. Yeah. So, you know, I think what I hear you saying is no chips equal to no computing power, no computing power equal to not leadership in AI and algorithms. Yeah. And that's really important, right? I mean, that really lends chips as a really critical high end throttle point where the barrier to entry is so high it's not very easy to make you know chips that are 14 nanometer and below yeah they're <laughs> the
2: most complex things we make as humans so so from from that perspective very difficult to see how they over, overcome that barrier now i don't think we should discount that that in fact there might be other options to get to it right so you know we have to be quite mindful you know, we shouldn't grow so complacent that, that our moats and fortifications are so strong that they can't be overcome. We should be very mindful that there might be other ways to figure out how this is done. You know, maybe it's in other fields, maybe it's around quantum, maybe it's, you know, so we have to sort of think about how these things play out. But my suspicion is, is that, that it's actually a fairly good position to be in. And therefore, you know, we're likely to gain the benefits of it more than than the PRC can gain the benefits from it.
0: So you've convinced me that, you know, semiconductor chips are really the most important leverage point to and it's important to keep it that way. It probably wasn't hard to convince you on that. <laughs> but writ large for other technology areas that depend on that as its foundation. And you know, I just want to add sort of this emphasize for our audience that it does take eight to 10 years to get from where China and others, some others are like 40, 50 nanometer technology to 40 nanometer and below technology. It takes around a decade plus of investment in R&D and design to get the leverage that we have right now. And we need to keep building on and investing in it. And presumably during that 10 or 15
2: years, we are continuing to make further progress in what is considered to be cutting edge today. And where I'm most concerned is that given Beijing's sort of track record of flooding the market with products you know, and largely dumping in areas that they already have a manufacturing capacity in, that that undermines and destroys all the revenue that would drive the research and development forward into the next, you know, and so this is, you know, this is this whole argument that Rob Atkinson makes in his piece on innovation drag, right, That that fundamentally, sort of the harmful trade behaviors that Beijing employs, what it does is put a drag on innovation, because in fact, the things that pay for the innovation is the revenue you're making off of the more mature technology, right? And, then the, and as that gets eaten away, there isn't the money to continue to push out the outer edge. And that to me is the more concerning position of where we're in, you know, because while we've made some sort of government investments in the CHIPS Act, and we're gonna do some things, it is a drop in the bucket of sort of what the industry is going to need to sort of put forward in R&D budgets in order to continue to move that, that cutting edge forward. right? So if our theory is, is that we're gonna keep, keep an advantage, we have to keep moving that cutting edge forward. And my fear is that that's where the money comes from. And that's what's being undermined.
1: Matt, we really thank you for your time today. I, I think, you know, we want to close by saying, what, what are you really thinking about is going to happen in the next five to 10 years on this set of issues?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, we're going to see, I think, a further awakening across the U.S., Europe, Japan, Korea, that we're in a serious geopolitical rivalry and this is about kind of what is the sort of future we want to see of an international system. And, and of course, our economic and technological decisions are going to be in our activities and the sort of economic and technological domains will be determinative of what that system looks like. And I, I, I think that that will continue to sink in across various countries. It'll be very messy on how we organize ourselves, but I'm actually fairly optimistic that we will be able to do it. And it's and what we'll end up redoing is sort of remaking an international system in which our values are baked into it. and I think that unfortunately Beijing and probably Moscow will set themselves apart from that and try and create their own system. And I think over time their system doesn't work as well as, as if we're able to sort of build something that has continued to be based upon sort of an open and transparent system. And so and we're gonna have to make a lot of decisions. The details of that are going to be. You know, we're going to have we're going to have a lot of arguments about how that gets set up. But I fundamentally think that we're we will be successful in that. But that's sort of a generational job for our ourselves and and our successors. Kirti, uh, final thoughts.
0: Final thoughts, Andrew. I think it's clear from this conversation that we have started the era of reimagining globalization, and it comes with economic costs and consequences that you know our generation is going to have to deal with. And we need to we need to keep the eye on the ball. We need to take this, a very cautious approach to m- limit economic damage and define the floor, as you call it, Matt.
1: Yep. Matt, Kirti, thank you so much for your time today.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for tuning into Geotech Wars.
1: You can listen to more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify,
0: or wherever you listen to great content.
1: Don't forget to rate and review us. Until next time.